Can you hear me all right? Yeah. That's great. Namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble, and fully self-awakened one. Uh, so tonight, <coughs> uh, we're going to have a look at karma. Um, so we've done the, uh, we've we've been through the um, dependence origination, which tells us <coughs> just how we create problems for ourselves, and the um, the. Uh, the five aggregates uh, really deconstructed uh, the way we look at a human being uh, and pinpointed the area which is causing the problem around sankaras, those conditions. So now we have to look at the, uh, at the consequences of actions. And uh, <coughs> uh, it's, it's good to begin with the, um, the this-that law that um, Karen mentioned last night uh, <coughs> and to understand the explanation as to how the Buddha saw how the universe creates. Uh, <coughs> so the this that law is, is pretty, uh, it sounds a bit simplistic. Um, actually when the Buddha gave his first talk one of his early disciples, uh, early, uh, early friends in the ascetic practice where he was uh, starving himself and all that, uh, Asaji uh, became a disciple. And when he was walking, two uh, Brahmins who became <coughs> the main uh, disciples of the Buddha, Sariputta and Moggallana, Sariputta met this man, Asaji, and um, speaking to him, asked him what his teacher thought. And he said, all of those things that from a cause arise, the Tathagata, the cause thereof, has told. <clears throat> the Tathagata was the way the Buddha referred to himself, which you can trans it translates directly, uh, simply as gone there, uh, but it, uh, it's better translated as transcendent. And it says, and how they cease to be, that too he tells. This is the teaching of the great recluse. And when Sariputta heard this, it seemed to strike a bell. He went to tell his friend Moggallana, and they both became uh, the Buddha's chief disciples. Sariputta was known as the general of the Dharma, because his understanding of the, of the teaching was second only to the Buddha himself. In fact, I think in one discourse, the Buddha equates his understanding to his own. Anyway, <coughs> the, uh, the law of causality, how, why things happen, is, uh, is the law of this and that. So when that happened in the past, this happens now. And because that didn't happen in the past, this doesn't happen now. Because, this, because that happened now, this happens now also. And because that didn't happen now, this doesn't happen. 
Okay, so that's your that's your law. Now uh, <clears throat> take the first one first. Just cause linear causality from the past to the present. Uh, if if the present is only the product of past action, then it would be difficult to know where creativity comes. You would presume it would just repeat itself. You'd have a, a repetitive uh, cosmos, a repetitive universe. <coughs> um, and on the other hand, if things happen just now together, then one with no uh, causality coming from the past, then one could only presume chaos. Yeah? When you put them both together, you have order and chaos, and that's what we're experiencing. That's why nothing ever repeats itself. It's always changing. Uh, <clears throat> say, for instance, this course. Everybody came here uh, by their own particular path uh, and for their own reasons. And on arriving here now, because you're all here, I'm giving this talk. If you weren't here, I'd still be giving the talk, but to the cows. Anybody who listens, just like, <laughs> just like a poet, they need somebody to hear what they have to say. So if one of you hadn't come, then it would be a slightly different meeting. See? So <clears throat> with that in mind, understanding that causality at the base of the reason why the universe behaves as it does, uh, we then look at a slightly higher level of causality, which is uh, known as the, uh, the natural laws, or just the laws, really. Now, <clears throat> normally when people experience something, they usually say, oh, it's my karma. See? So if, uh, you know, if, a, if a brick falls on your head, then you must have done something really bad in your past life, or something like that. Uh, but there are, in fact, five laws that uh, the Buddha points out. <coughs> uh, these, were, these were taken from his teachings, you might say. The first one is known as Uttanayama, uh, the law of heat, the law of energy. And it equates to our uh, uh, physical uh, sciences, uh, physics, chemistry, and so on. But it, obviously, it would be, it, they would have different understandings. So <coughs> the tsunami, which, which swept across the um, Pacific there, was it? The Pacific? Um, and hit Sri Lanka and then went on to Thailand and, and places like that. Um, that was just nature, right? That's not cause. That's not a direct cause uh, by the people. So in Sri Lanka and Thailand, many people would have thought, well, you know, in the last life I must have, um, I must have drowned somebody because now uh, the person who died must have drowned somebody because they've been drowned, making a sort of simple connection of personal karma. And uh, that might be a bit comforting that you think that, you know, I've just, I, I've, somebody suffered drowning uh, for some justifiable reason. But actually, uh, they just happened to be in the wrong place at the right time. So it's, uh, there's a whole law that we have to accept on being born as a human being, which is to do with the physical nature of the universe. Just as a little aside to that, um, 
those of you uh, who know these um, metaphors that the Buddha gives about Nibbana, he often talks, it's like a fire going out. Nibbana, uh, the ultimate uh, experience is like a fire going out. <clears throat> now, when the early missionaries read this, of course, they thought, well, that's just annihilation. They couldn't, you know, that was it. They couldn't make head or tail of it at all. It was just, it was a religion, sort of, uh, with no God, no creator God. And in the end, well, you just disappear. So it was basically a very subtle form of annihilation. But that's not to understand the physics of the time. So what was understood was that heat, energy, was all around, all around. When you rub two sticks together, you're not, uh, it's not the two sticks that are rubbing together that are causing the heat. What you're doing is you're attracting the heat from around you, the energy from around you, you see. And when the energy gets to a certain point of uh, intensity, then what we experience is the fire. So the idea of fire was one of clinging to the wood, you see. And when the wood was consumed, it disappeared. But it didn't die, it just went back into its natural state of unattachment. So it was a way, the Buddha was saying, of uh, our awareness, our intuitive awareness, is, is clinging on to something uh, and creating, and through this clinging, creating uh, this, this suffering. And the, one of the early discourses is um, where he talks about everything's burning. Everything's burning with the, with, the, with the fires of desire, the fires of hatred, and the fires of delusion. And it's quite a poetic sort of explanation of, of how fire is the uh, metaphor for our suffering. But then, when, when the intuitive awareness ungrasps itself, it returns to its natural state of just pure, um, pure intuitive awareness. Right? So that's just a little aside for people who um, wonder what the Buddha means when he says that the, the, uh, the enlightened one goes out like a, like a flame. So uh, <coughs> uh, just a little, another little aside. When the uh, tsunami did hit Sri Lanka, many uh, w uh, good-hearted Westerners, uh, counselors, went out to help uh, counsel people with, tr with this trauma. And what they found, of course, was that there wasn't that much trauma at all because uh, there was a philosophy to accept what was happening. So they either thought of it as karmic consequence or uh, just got used to the idea that things happen, everything changes. So people weren't, in a sense, so traumatized as we would be uh, because we, we expect everything to be exactly safe and perfect and we're not ready for these sorts of things. Uh, so that's the first law. The second law is the law of bija, which is the law of uh, the seed. So that's our genetic law. And again, um, a misunderstanding, especially through the process of, of uh, past lives, that if somebody is born with a genetic disease, that somehow they deserve it, somehow they, they, um, uh, you know, they, 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 they've done something in a past life that's made this happen. So now, <coughs> that would also be a grave misunderstanding. Uh, the, the body that we end up with, of course, is a given. You can't, can't do much about it, even though I, I've often wished to do so. Uh, but the, 
the, the way that you tackle it, the way that you live with that uh, body, is your personal karma. And um, there was, when I was staying at Amrawati, <coughs> uh, the uh, Buddhist monastery just north of London, there was a, a young man there who uh, was completely crippled by a genetic disease. And um, he was very spiritual. You know, we had to carry him uh, places, carry him to the toilet and things like that. And um, what had happened was, he was the first child, and uh, when the parents asked, would th could this happen to a second child, they were told it would be, you know, 100 million to one. It's a most rare thing to happen. But unfortunately, the next child, a, a girl, actually uh, began to develop the same disease. And whereas he was okay with it and working with it and was turning to the spiritual life, it seems that his sister had become tremendously embittered and uh, was in great suffering, great personal suffering. That's the karma, you see. <clears throat> so um, that's the second law. The, the third one, um, actually it's, it's the fourth one because I'm missing out uh, karma itself until the end is uh, psychology is the the psychology of the mind uh, and that's that's what he explains through dependence origination but remember it's not it's not a complete psychology he's not he's not interested in developmental psychology for instance um, it's ve it's just specifically the psychology to do with suffering with how we create problems for ourselves and uh, as you know, there are different that there are different models of the mind. Freud, with his ego, which is, you know, it's understandable. It's in, in a sense, it's sort of Buddhistic because the ego is driven by desire, desire, and it has to sort of negotiate between this, between all the stuff coming out of the subconscious, the id, with this uh, super ego, keeps telling it what to do and what not to do. But interestingly, just again as an aside with Freud, he did end up with two theories as to what was pushing us, what was the underlying desires, and that was Eros and Thanatos. So Eros was, uh, wasn't just uh, sexual desire or anything, it was the desire to live, and that's basically what the Buddha says, and the desire to die. So the, th the three desires that we have is the desire to uh, enjoy life, to, uh, sensual pleasures, all sorts of sensual pleasures, uh, the desire to become, to continue, to keep living, and the desire to annihilate. So <clears throat> whenever, we, whenever we feel a bit off and we, and we throw ourselves uh, on the bed and go to sleep, it's, that's just a very soft self-annihilation. It's a soft suicide. You just want to get rid of yourself for a while. So those two, uh, those two desires, I think, uh, Freud seemed to have conned on to. He saw no escape, of course. There was <laughs> there's no psychotherapy I know of that, that says there's, there's a complete end to suffering, more of an accommodation. And from the mind, of course, you then get um, um, all the, um, all the uh, uh, you know, uh, people, uh, minds meeting minds. So then you've got your sociology, your economics, etc., etc. It all comes from this psychology. <clears throat> the final one is the law of the, of Dharma, the Dharma laws. So that includes what we've been doing in Buddhism, anyway. It's the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path. There's lots of numbers, and uh, uh, and, and all that congregates into 
the, the path that leads to the end of suffering. Then you've got uh, this karma. So karma is to do with ethics. And what we, what we have to understand is that when you create an act, um, not so much in the mind, although it'll have an effect if it, if it moves down into speech, but definitely speech and action, you're, you're putting a certain energy, you're putting an act into two matrices. The first matrix is your own psychology, and the second one is the one out there. And uh, <coughs> the, the inner matrix is, is just as complicated as the world out there. So what you do, the way you think, the way you speak, has a systemic effect. It's not that you can separate these things out. So, <coughs> for instance, if you... Uh, if if a person is of a type that likes to exaggerate, exaggerating, just sort of drawing the fine line between exaggerating and lying, <laughs> you see what I mean? And 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 they can constantly exaggerating about how amazingly wonderful they are. See, um, so it creates within them uh, this 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 uh, idea of themselves being bigger than they actually are. So when the crash comes, when somebody tells them how they really are, then uh, just, just a simple action which undermines their confidence can have a systemic effect. Right? And it's the same on the outside. So um, the simplest act can, uh, can have an effect outwards. Uh, we know from physics, I'm sure you all know the, um, the chaos theory about the butterfly and all that, you know, flapping its wings in South, Africa, uh, South America and, and creating a big hurricane in Texas. That's the, the one that they normally talk about. So uh, the fact is that sort of uh, non-linear uh, effect of, of our actions is, is, uh, has to be understood that when you act, you don't know the consequences. Uh, one example that I always use, actually, it's a bit unfair, I suppose, <laughs> is there was a, a charity here in Totnes that um, sent clothes to a particular community in Africa. But unfortunately, it undermined the tailor trade. And in undermining the tailor trade, it had the effect of undermining just that small little bit of economy. And therefore, they had to pull their, they had to get their clothes out. <laughs> So even even with the best of wishes, you know, with a great compassionate heart, you can be doing more harm than good. And uh, so it must be matched with wisdom or at least with some sort of uh, un uh, uh, understanding of, the, of, of what you're actually going into. Uh, but the law of karma uh, just simply states that uh, when we do good, good will come of it. And when we do harm, harm will come of it. But uh, it can also have other consequences, that's all. Yeah. Uh, the other mistake is to think of karma as punishment. Punishment has really no place in the Buddha's, uh, in the Buddha's understanding. Uh, when you do something which is harmful to yourself or to another, uh, just bearing the consequences is all we have to do. You don't, have, you don't have to then have to club yourself, right? It's enough just to bear the consequences. And when the consequences die out, that's the end of your karmic uh, uh, dues, you might say. I'm talking about now, the, uh, obviously, the, the, the stuff we do which isn't particularly helpful. Uh, so, for instance... Um, <coughs> 
Uh, I always like the example of uh, stealing for a monk. Uh, if a monk takes something which is not theirs, not freely given, uh, they actually lose their robes, right? You don't have, there's no big ceremony, you know, they don't sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of scruff you up to a court and then throw you out ceremoniously. Uh, just the monk knows in themselves that they've broken the rule. The same applies to nuns. Uh, and that they are actually no longer a monk. They, they shouldn't be wearing the robes. But there's a whole process whereby somebody might, might come to that unfortunate act. So it might be that as I'm strolling through here, I, I see your mobile and I think, well, that's, that's better than mine. And, <laughs> and the desire arises in me that uh, I might actually like that. And I very unfortunately move towards it with the intention to take. But of course, the better part of me grabs me and, and, and moves me on. So even so, that movement is what's known as a dukkata. That's a, that's a small offense. And um, one has to recognize that. And in the old days, you would have to um, uh, confess that. Every two weeks, you read the Patimoka, which is the rule, of the, uh, the rule of the order. And before you do that, you have to confess to anything that you've done wrong. These days, it's, you don't go into, into too much detail. But, <laughs> but the idea was that you were, you were very open about the mistakes you made. Now, it happens that on the way back, your, your mobile's still there. So again, I'm motivated to uh, perhaps oik it. And as I pass by, I can't, I can't stop myself and I move towards it and I put my hand on it. But then wisdom takes the better of me and whips me away, you see. Now, you know, putting my fingers on the mobile is a grievous offense. That's a garavo. And, um, and that shows me, and that should have, uh, uh, you know, make the alarms bell ring that I'm very close to taking this thing. Anyway, on the third case, I, 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 I give in. I can't help it. And I grab, I, I move towards the mobile. I hold it and I move it a nanosecond before guilt and the horror of what I've done overtake me and I let go of it and run away. It's too late. I've stolen it. To move it one nano of a set is to take what was not freely given. And I've lost my robes. So I try not to do it. So you can see there the process of, uh, of action and the consequences that come back to, to somebody who does that, as a monk, you know. But what makes much more sense to uh, a Buddhist psychology, it would be something like restorative justice, which I'm sure you all know about, where you bring the, 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 the criminal, the person who's committed the crime, and the person who suffered and the society, and, and really get them to acknowledge what they've done. And this often has quite, a, quite an effect on the criminal. You know, to see the, 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 the suffering they've caused and the pain they've caused. And then to find some way that they can make amends. I mean, that's, that's a much better way than, you know, slapping them in prison. Um, not that uh, certain, certain uh, criminals have to be in prison just to save us, <laughs> to guard us from their actions. But uh, most of it would, wouldn't, wouldn't be necessary if this restorative justice were more... Uh, were used more. Um, uh, when it comes to uh, that sort of um, action, action and consequences, there's uh, the, uh, I was driving up the motorway. Now uh, we'd run a retreat down here at the old centre. Some of you might know the, um, oh yeah, the, uh, the Golden Buddha Centre that used to be there. 
down uh, just south of Totnes. And um, as you come off the as you come off the motorway, the M6 M5, um, you you hit this dual carriageway, and you've got to drop from anywhere between 50, 70 miles an hour to 30 miles an hour. And if you're not quick enough, you get caught. So I got caught at 36 miles an hour. <laughs> and, it's, and when I told people where, I, where we live in White Grit, they immediately knew that place. It, it was a set-up trap for, <laughs> for them to make a bit of money. So uh, I was given a choice of either paying the fine or going to see uh, uh, a film or some uh, being educated as to what happened when you hit somebody at 36 miles an hour. So I generally keep the law, so I, I, I didn't bother to waste, uh, to waste what would have been wasted a day, really, uh, going to see these uh, corrective films. Uh, and, and, and paying the... F it's 100 quid. It's not a joke, is it? <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's not like a fiver. And uh, uh, that was bad enough, you see. So, of course, I took it on the chin. I was able, you know, and all that. So that was my consequence, you see. And I, I don't have to go around saying I'm a terrible driver. I should never have done it. How could I behave like that? I, you know, be more careful next time. The next thing about uh, actions is, of course, uh, all uh, ethical... Oh, heavens. Oh, no, all right. So I'm looking at the time. Uh, all ethical actions are always circumstantial. They're always contextual. It depends on the situation in which you find yourself. And, and it's often not just black and white. And uh, one, one, one uh, makes the best judgment that, that you can. I mean, an obvious medical one that comes up in, um, in, um, in uh, what, do they, what do they call that? What do they call that? medicine for people who are dying, suffering, palliative medicine, thank you. <laughs> uh, the doctor can, uh, you know, give, give enough medicine, but knows that the amount they're giving is actually going to kill the patient. And it depends upon their intention, you see. If they thought, well, the patient's a bit of a nuisance, I'll get rid of them, then it's <laughs> that wouldn't be particularly ethical. But if the intention is to reduce their suffering as best they can until the point of death, then uh, that would be compassionate. You know, that's, that's understandable. One of the big ones is abortion, of course. Uh, on, the, on the left, of course, uh, the complete rights of the mother, and on the right, uh, the complete rights of the, of the unborn child or, the, or the, uh, the fetus and all that. And that, there's, no, there's, no, uh, there's no answer to that dilemma. There's no, there's no conclusion to it. It'll always be there. And uh, even for a Buddhist, uh, that would be also a spiritual problem. Uh, because in Buddhism, it's understood that as soon as there's conception, there's also uh, consciousness. So the full potential of a human being is there. Uh, but again, uh, you know, if, if a woman finds herself in a place where they just feel they cannot uh, uh, give birth and all that, or continue with the, the pregnancy, then uh, it's up to her to make that decision and, uh, and, and accept the consequences. And it might be very justifiable in the circumstance. I remember a colleague of mine, uh, she became pregnant, and when she told um, her boyfriend, uh, he bunked off. It's typical, you might think. 
And uh, of course, she was left. She was left with this pregnancy. Like, what's she going to do? She just felt she couldn't go through with it. So uh, one has to accept that sometimes um, the situation makes you make uh, decisions that you might not want to make. But then to go into a sort of false guilt and and, and self hatred for it would would not be necessary. One does what one can within a situation. Yeah? Uh, there are lovely all sorts of on the on the tube. You'll find all these thought experiments about that sort of dilemma. There's one uh, I'm sure. Have you heard? The, you've seen the one about the the fat man on the bridge. Do you know that one? The fat man on the bridge. <laughs> okay, so so you've got this situation where a train's coming, and uh, there's a big fat man on the bridge with you, and the train. That, uh, and, and as you look down the track, you can see there's a few people hanging around on the track, or they've fallen over, or somehow five people are on the track. And so, you've got, so you have a, a dilemma. You're going to let the train run through, or chuck this fat fellow over <laughs> and stop the train? <laughs> it's all a bit silly, really, but it does show you that there are dilemmas. <laughs> the interesting thing, if you go on, and, and I suppose if you Google fat man on bridge, <laughs> something <laughs> You get all these answers, but not on a single one of them did I see the option of throwing yourself over. <laughs> That's interesting, isn't it? Like to hell with self-sacrifice. There's another one which is rather interesting, self-driving cars. Self-driving cars. Now, uh, the, one of the examples they give is, suppose you're driving along on a three-lane highway and the truck in front of you drops, uh, starts dropping stuff. So now you've got, an, you've, got, you've got an option. You can go left into an SUV and know that uh, you know, they, they, can take, they can take the hammering, or you can go right and hit this motorcyclist. Uh, whichever way you go, it's going, to cause, it's going to cause problems, right? But definitely, you're not going to hurt yourself by going into this thing that's just hit the ground. Uh, now, what we would do, of course, is probably quite reactively move one way or the other. So we wouldn't blame the driver, it was just the reaction. But on a self-drive car, you have a, an algorithm. And the algorithm is set. Now, is it set to preserve the driver at all costs? Is it set to avoid as much, uh, from a capitalist point of view, damage, physical damage to cars and other vehicles? Or is it set to uh, protect the other? Right. So now you have a crash, and um, it was set to um, save the save the person at all costs. Now that's premeditated, and people are killed. And then when you look at the film, you can see that the car could have done something else. Now you've got a big problem, haven't you? So there's all these lovely problems come up with with modern technology. Um, when it comes to uh, an action, if, if, you're, if you're conscious of doing something which is harmful, then you can always do something to undermine it. It's called uh, supportive karma, sometimes undermining karma. So, for instance, if you, uh, if you say some sharp word to somebody and they're obviously upset, then obviously you can just say sorry, and that's the end of that karmic flow. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you could say something to somebody which you meant to insult them and then behind their back slander them <laughs> and make sure you do even more harm. And that would be supporting 
your bad karma, right? So um, we often behave in a way which makes things worse. So the whole point of, uh, of, of our ethics is to make sure that we're always coming, we're always reflecting upon the, the effects of our actions, uh, both upon ourselves, on the other, both ourselves and the other. And of course, the, uh, the basic thing is to, do, is to do good, you know. Uh, it often takes a long time for karma to sort, you know, to have its effect, an action to have its effect. Uh, as you know, criminals can be caught years after the crime. So it's not as though uh, you, you, can, you, can, you can get away with it at, on, a, on, a, on an absolute basis. Um, I, I'm going to come to that a little bit more when we talk about past lives. Uh, but uh, the, the, the thing to... Um, uh, 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 the consequence of doing a, an act which is, which is unwholesome is, of course... Uh, uh, guilt or dread and shame. Now, um, if we don't have that sort of reaction to doing something which is unwholesome, then what would stop us doing anything which is unwholesome? If you don't have any sense of dread of consequences, um, and if you don't have any shame about what you do, then you, you're basically, uh, I, I suppose, a, um, a psychopath, really. You don't have any feeling for the other. You can't, you can't be... You don't have any empathy for the other. But that, in a sense, pulls it into the area of, of mental illness. But um, uh, our sense of guilt and our sense of shame is a ne are necessary, according to the Buddha. He talks about them as being guardians of society. Right? Guardians of society. Our, uh, but our problem might be that we are over-guilty. Uh, that we find ourselves uh, just feeling uh, feeling feeling guilty all the time <laughs> and it very much depends upon your upon your upbringing um, I was surprised by my niece uh, she said something that was very hard to hard to grasp but she was eight years old and we were brought up as Catholics and um, she was told that you know fundamentally she was evil you know she, she was born with 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 uh, an evil in her, this original sin. And at the age of eight, she said to herself, no, I'm not. And that was the end. And that was... <laughs> and, I, and, she, and she dropped Catholicism from that age. She wasn't committed at all. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I, uh, I lived with that for many years. <laughs> now, in, in Buddhism, they, they wouldn't say that uh, you, you are fundamentally evil... Uh, but you are born with your conditioning from past life, and um, and so now we uh, uh, so so you can see that uh, the sense of guilt can be can be overplayed. It can be too sensitive, and if you feel guilty, see there is guilt. But if you feel deep in your heart that you are guilty of some terrible crime, then you know vipassana should help you overcome that. So guilt is, uh, in Buddhism, just the, the, the fear of consequences, the dread of consequences. Shame is much more to do with your self-esteem. So <clears throat> uh, that feeling of embarrassment when you do something, uh, which is shameful, especially if other people see it. But if that sense of shame isn't within you when you do something which is, which, uh, is, is unwholesome, then there's a, a lack of sensitivity. Of course, uh, we can feel more embarrassed with social gaffes than we can with um, 
with even things that we do that are patently wrong. Uh, you all know the story of Sir Walter Raleigh at the court of Queen Elizabeth. I think I've, I've said it, yeah? No? Well, he must have done a very low bar bow and out escaped an enormous fart. And he was so embarrassed, he did not appear in court for a year. And when he finally returned, the Queen uh, uh, welcomed him as, Welcome to our court, Sir, Rally, uh, Sir Walter. Uh, we have forgot the fart. <laughs> so, uh, uh, yes, shame, shame can be quite a, um, a barrier. Guilt, by the way, just going back a bit, guilt is the, uh, is the first steps of compassion, if you think about it. Hmm? If you don't feel guilty, you won't feel compassion. See? That's if you're doing harm, yeah? But it's the first movement where you realize uh, you've hurt somebody and there are consequences. So the role of guilt and shame in the Buddhist teachings are, are really core to our social cohesiveness. And it comes as the fourth uh, hindrance. It comes under restlessness and uh, that fidgetiness you get when you feel shamed and guilty. So uh, finally, there's this whole business of uh, ethical justice. Is there, is, is there such a thing as final ethical justice? Um, I mean, we, we think that people might get away with it. You've only got to think of Franco and Stalin who died happily in bed, um, I presume happily in bed, uh, having committed enormous crimes. Um, the first thing to really uh, grasp is when somebody does harm to somebody else, um, they, are, they are guilty or they are responsible for the harm they've committed. They're not responsible for the person's reaction to what they've done. So all our rea if you look back and you think about people who've harmed you in some way, they've said a word or something or, or whatever, your reaction to that has been your reaction. That's not been caused by them. And that's really something to grasp. You know? So you know, if somebody, if somebody uh, punches me on the nose, remember, right? I mean, I've got, there's a pain here, that's definite. And I might, it might be broken. And that was done by the other. And I've also had to receive their, their, their emotion of anger. But my response, the desire for revenge, the desire to revenge myself and all that, is entirely my reaction, was not caused by them. So when you understand that all this, the hurt that somebody feels about uh, what's been done to them, um, uh, then you... You begin to understand that actually the process of self-healing when it comes to any harm that has been done to you is the abandonment within you of any desire to avenge yourself, any desire for revenge, and to sit with the hurt and to, re and to recognize that the hurt was self-created. And that's very difficult to, uh, to sort of accept you know, uh, especially for people who've been who've been uh, victims of, uh, of of attack or rape or anything like that. But actually, the inner f the inner pain that they're suffering is actually self-created, and that's why it can be completely healed. 
completely healed by it. There's a, a story in a book about forgiveness where a woman uh, loses her son to, to a stabbing. Uh, to, he, the son is killed. She goes to see this murderer in prison and over time uh, befriends him. Finally, takes him into her home and treats him like her son. So what she must have gone through, the whole healing process within her own heart, you can imagine, uh, was quite transformative within her and to form that relationship with this man who'd killed her son and treat him like her son. So, uh, you know, it's like uh, in the Bible, you know, where they asked Jesus how many times you should forgive somebody. Uh, seven, seven by seven. He said, no, he said, you know, is it seven times would that be enough? And then you can... Then you can kill him. <laughs> he says, "No, seven by seven. In other words, you always forgive. It's not. It's not the. It's not the way out." So, um, past lives. So, sorry. So, uh, uh, when we when we are born, we're born with the consequence of our past lives. Now, uh, the sankharas. These are the um, conditions that we have within us. And the moment of death, whatever is, whatever is the mental state that is, that is prevalent at the, at the moment of death is the one that has its greatest effect on uh, your next life. And uh, most of you will know that there are these stages that you go through when you realize that you are dying. You know, the sense of shock, which, for instance, if you were in an accident and you died, that shock would be there within, would be prevalent for your next life. And then there's that disbelief and sort of living in a, in a world of make-believe where, you know, if you eat so many carrots, the cancer will disappear. Uh, the, and, and the magic of trying to do something. When that fails, you've got the anger. And then the depression. And then finally, this sort of acceptance. So you can see, if you die in any of that process, then that would carry on to your next life. Now... <coughs> um, so when we come into uh, this life, we bring with us certain conditions, uh, certain habits. And given the situation, a certain habit will be reinforced. And that will begin to manifest. The same situation that you were in in a previous life, a similar situation. It's much like in this life. If a person, for instance, um, falls in love with somebody, but actually what they're in love with is falling in love. And then when, the, when that lovely uh, business of, um, of romance and eroticism begin to fade away, then they always say, I, I, I don't know what I saw in that person. You know, it's horrible. <laughs> and then a, f a few months down the line, they've fallen in love again, you see. And they, they're always blaming the other for, their, for, their, for, the, for the end of the relationship. And eventually one day they wake up, and, and that would be hopefully the end of that cycle. Um, so uh, it's understood that even two, three lives ago, we might have committed something which has not been activated by the situations we, we, find, we find ourselves in each consequent life. And yet further down the line, when we're born, that old habit will begin to manifest, or the, the, the situation will be there for it to manifest, and then the consequences of that past actions come through. See? So, uh, 
Uh, I've covered so many topics here. So, uh, you know, as a sort of overall view of karma. Uh, but past lives, let me just finish. Uh, well, let me just go through what, what we've covered just to remind you. So we, we started off with the law of uh, this, this, that law and how, uh, how things happen. And that's always creative. Uh, so you never know exactly what the consequences are of any action. Mm. Uh, that we have those five laws, the physical laws, the, the genetic laws, the, the mind. And then this whole law uh, according to the karma. So not everything that happens to us has anything to do with our personal actions, consequences of our personal actions, and the, and the, the law of um, the spiritual laws. We talked a little bit about punishment and how difficult it is sometimes through context and circumstance to come to, uh, to, come to some moral decision about things. Uh, how we can behave so that karma plays out over time. And then there's the role of guilt and shame. Uh, and finally this idea of ethical justice over time. So <coughs> um, the idea of rebirth is very, you know, it's very strange to us Westerners. Um, some, will, uh, some have even said that the Buddha never taught it, but that's definitely been scotched. The Buddha did teach uh, past lives. It's right there at the very base of the, the very first parts of the scriptures. The scriptures were, of course, developed over time, little bit by little bit, but through the study of the language, Pali, they can see what the basic uh, language is right at the base, and uh, there's no doubt uh, that he did actually teach rebirth. And it's there in his victory verse, and it's part of his awakening. The, the awakening was, first of all, to see how his act, past actions had created life after life. And he was able to see other beings moving from realm to realm, dependent on their, on their moral behavior. So what was a personal law became a universal law for him. And the third insight was that his heart was completely cleared of any impurities. That, those were the three insights that came to him on, uh, on awakening. Um, so <clears throat> I was on a, um, a train once going down to Brighton and a rugby fan got on. And this guy sat opposite me and he said, uh, are you a Buddhist monk? I said, I am, yeah. <laughs> he said, uh, I don't believe in reincarnation. I said, oh, I said, uh, do you know what happens when you die? He said, no, no. I said, well, why come to a conclusion? And his mate said, yeah, why come to a conclusion? <laughs> it was a great conversation. And he said, <laughs> and, and that's the point, you see. Even though we might uh, not believe in or, or think it's, a, you know, just made up things about past lives, uh, it's, it's, it may be wise to act as if there is a future life. That's all. Uh, Pascal, uh, the um, scientist, the 17th century scientist, I think. Yeah, 17th century. He's a philosopher as well, uh, a mathematician and all that. And um, in those days, of course, at the beginning of science, that's when atheism uh, began to come in as a, as, as a real force. So that we have these days a religion which has come out of science, and it's, it's, it's known as scientism, where everything... everything the, everything, our minds, are all emergent properties from matter, from brain. So he, he, there were also a, a, 
um, atheist in his own time. So he said, well, it, there may or may not be a God, but considering the consequences of bad actions <laughs> of eternal hell, it might just be wise to act as if there is a God. So whether there is future lives or not, it might just be wise to act as if it were, uh, as if they were, uh, uh, as if they really were there. Um, just as a final little thing, uh, people who do experience past lives, and you can experience the past life in this life, in a sense, and that is that um, there is something from a past life that needs to be uh, purified within the heart. Just think about, just see if it as energy. And when a past life comes up, the person experiences it as that person. They're a different personality. And that's the telltale. So if somebody said to you in the past life uh, they were Queen Victoria, then you'd have to say, well, what, what, did you actually, you know, what did you actually experience? And if it's just an idea that came into their head, a beautiful flow of images and whatnot, but actually, if they were Queen Victoria, they would have actually experienced themselves as a different personality. And this happens to us in our own lives if we have a trauma. If you relive a trauma from childhood, you, you relive it as that child. You don't relive it as an adult, as a memory of that child. You actually go through that experience again. And that's the process of purification. So that's why often in meditation you might, you might be, um, you may, it's, it's, not, it's not all that common. Um, you might actually have a past life experience. There's lots of examples of that if you go onto YouTube, if you want to you want to explore it. And there's been lots of um, research on it about past lives. You know, children who remember exactly uh, where they were born, who their families were, um, speak, speak languages that, that uh, you, they couldn't possibly have, have learned, things like that. So, <coughs> uh, as I say, it's best to behave as if there might be a future life. So uh, that brings to an end this little homily on, uh, on karma. I can only presume that it's been helpful, that I have not caused even greater confusion, and that by your uh, commitment to the moral life and ethical life, you will find happiness sooner rather than later. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.